This extended passage of Romans 6 and 7, it really is meant to be read together as a unit. Now let's just kind of come up for air because I know what it's like to see 12 slides read and you probably zoned out after, you know, word five. Um, But that being said, what those 12 slides anchor is something that is at the core of the human condition in life. And it comes down to a basic fundamental question that people have wrestled with internally, have wrestled with publicly, have wrestled with in circles that, that, that affect public policy, have wrestled with in circles philosophically. Are you fundamentally good? Or are you fundamentally evil? Is the human condition something that is saint? Or is the human condition something that is sinner? And how you answer that question is going to lead you to all kinds of applications and conclusions about how to live and function with other people in this world. And what Romans 6 and 7 does is it sets up a paradox. It's meant to be read hand in hand. And if you look at one, you only get half the picture. Maybe even worse, you don't get the correct picture. Because it seems to say in Romans 6 that you have been set free from sin, that you are righteous, that you are a saint. But then you turn around into Romans 7 and it says you are a slave to sin, you are sold out, you are a sinner. Which one are you? And what these two passages do is they butt up against each other, giving this picture or this contrast of what the human life is about. And it seems that the Bible says that to each of us who are in Christ, you are simultaneously a saint and a sinner. Now, I want to start with this idea of Romans 6. Romans 6 says, you're a saint. Now, I need to teach you something that comes earlier in Romans today, and it's going to get important in coming to terms with this idea I just said. This comes from Romans 3, all right? Read it with me. Let God be true and every man a liar. You know what that kind of means? That when God says something and it's different than what I think, he's right, I'm wrong, he's telling the truth, I'm lying. All right? It seems kind of like theology 101 right there, doesn't it? But I want to challenge you to actually come to terms with this and swallow it and believe it. And I want you to do something today. Anytime that I say, let God be true, I want you to kind of echo out, and every man a liar. All right? So let's give it a shot. Let God be true. Very good. Try it without words. Let God be true. Fantastic. Try it with words again. Let God be true. All right. Remember that. Remember that because it is the defining principle of coming to terms with Romans 6 and 7. And Romans 6 says, you are a saint. Now, I want to talk about that word. I asked my daughter, Reagan. She's in seventh grade. She said I could share this. When I tell you the word saint, what do you think of? Yeah, I knew you'd say that, Steve. All right? Yeah, you just wait. Right? New Orleans. What else do you think of? Mother Teresa, anything else? Closer to God. You are like ridiculously pious people. I swear, it makes me sick. Get out of church. Um, Tell you what she said. Demons. 
When she hears the word saint, she actually thinks of something sinister, something demonic and dark and spooky and scary. And we flushed it out a little bit, and I'm not completely sure why, but I think it has something to do with this, that when people often see pictures of like saints in church settings, or saints are often used in those kinds of motifs, it's always in big, haunted, creepy-looking churches, isn't it? And with it always comes like this specter of doom, like you expect the demons to be lurking in the shadows of the corner. And so for her, she always thought that the term saint meant something bad. You don't want the saints around. Oh my gosh, it doesn't get worse than that. Now, with the exception of you few pious weirdos here, for the rest of you, my bet is saint is really not a good word. My bet is that if someone uses the word saint with you or saint in a context around you, they're kind of using it derogatorily. You know, he thinks he's such a saint. Saint often carries some idea of self-righteousness, holier than thou, doesn't it? But maybe you come from a different frame of reference. Maybe you're like Steve Featherston back there and pictures of saints are something more like this, all right? Now, you could take a look at the right, and that one makes sense. You could take a look at the one on the left. This was the first image that came up when I did an image Google search on the word saint. Does that inspire you? (laughs) To the core. Just, isn't it kind of how it's pictured, though? Someone says someone's a saint, and it's kind of like this, moments like like around them and there's halos on heads and and of course they can never smile because saints don't smile because smiling would imply something of some kind of gratification of the flesh I suppose and and they have to kind of like meditate on crosses and flowers and skulls apparently honestly I look at those two pictures and I don't know which one is creepier um But when the Bible talks about saint, it is not talking about that. When the Bible talks about saint, it's not talking about someone who's, you know, who made it to like, you know, top tier stained glass windows in a really cool church. It's, it's not talking about, you know, I don't really know what it is, but I know if I bury it upside down in my yard, I'll sell my house. I mean, it's not talking about stuff like that. When the Bible talks about saint, it actually means something very good. And it uses the term all the time. I'll show you one example. This is how Philippians 1 kicks off. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, you know, we're the ones writing this, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with overseers and deacons. Now, you don't have to do this now, but I challenge you to do this sometime today. Go through and look at how all the letters of Paul in the New Testament begin. And most of them begin with some kind of derivation of Paul and whoever is writing with him saying, to the saints at this place. Now, does that mean he's just writing to like those, that extra special crowd? Like, like, you know, screw the rest of you, but you know, you holy ones, this one's to you. When the Bible uses the term saint, it's actually unpacking a word underneath hagios in the New Testament, kadosh in Hebrew, which simply means this, holy one. The translation you see here and what you might see in other Bibles come out more uh, clearly or better said differently is a saint is a holy one, okay? Which, of course, conjures up the question, oh, okay, holy one, that doesn't make it sound any better, does it? But you know what? 
it comes from a misunderstanding of what holy means. Because just like people butch this idea of saint, I think we butch this idea of holy to mean something like super Christian or, or, or you know, super righteous or, or better than the rest or, or sin-free or like, I am so good, man, just like, it don't stink. You know, something like that going on in their life. It's not what holy means. When you come across the word holy in the Bible, it doesn't mean better than the rest. All it means is this, to be set apart to be separated for some special kind of purpose. Maybe the best way to approach the word holy is simply to call it different. So you have our spirits and spirit at work, but there's a different kind of spirit at work, a holy spirit, a spirit that is set apart, a spirit that, that, that somehow has a different function and purpose than our spirits and our souls. We're doing this thing called communion, and maybe if you grew up in a liturgical church, it was called holy communion, right? Is there really anything special about these little wafers and this Mogan David that we're about to get into in a little bit? I mean, it's not like, like the Pope came and blessed it. It's not like Jesus kind of like set it aside in 33 AD and said, okay, here's the secret stash. This is the really good stuff. It's just bread. It's just Mogan David. And in the wine world, it doesn't even rank among the best, right? You know, I mean, can I get an amen? But what makes it holy? It's just being set, aside, set, a, set apart for a special purpose. It's being set apart for something that God wants to do with it. And that's all that it means to be a saint. Because a saint is a holy one. And something that is holy is something that is set apart for a special purpose by God. And those special things are not good in and of themselves. It's not that they have magic powers. It's not that they're supercharged. It's not that they're better than the rest. It's that God set them apart for a certain purpose. And in so doing, he purifies it. He cleanses it. He sanctifies it. He, he does something to it that makes it what we often think by the term holy. Are you with me? This is why the writer to the Hebrews can come around and say something like this. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. You're not holy because you're just holy. You're not a saint because you're so good. It's because Jesus made you holy. But you are holy nonetheless. If you are in Jesus, God looks at you and says, Holy. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I don't feel holy. Well, let God be true. Let God be true. <laughs> because if God says it's true, it's true. And then we come to Romans 7. And it flips on the heels. And after this amazing thing that's set up about talking about how we're made in the image of God and, 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 and God made us inherently good to begin with and God has set us apart and has called us holy through the blood of his son, it'll turn around and simultaneously say things like you're a slave to sin, like you're broken, like, like, like you're defiled. It's almost the idea that we're made in the image of God, but, 
But despite that, we've become defiled to the core. Now, theologians will use a term for this. They'll call it total depravity. You ever hear of this? It's ever come across your grid? Total depravity. Now, there's some misunderstanding about what this means. Some people, when they hear this term or kind of use this idea, they think that total depravity means that I am 100% evil. That is not what the theologians meant by it. When these early reformers coined this term, that is never what they meant. Instead, what they meant by total depravity is that there isn't a single ounce of who you are that is left undefiled from sin. That, that, that when we're defiled, it's not just our spirit. It's our soul, our emotions, our body, our will, our relationships. There, there is no aspect of who we are that is untouched by this thing called sin. It's kind of like God made us as a masterpiece. And then someone came along and vandalized it. There was a movie that came out recently. Maybe you saw it. It was Monuments Men. It was about this, this, this group during the end of World War II who realized that, that Hitler was seizing precious works of art throughout Europe and holding them up in Germany and even doing so with the idea that if Germany was going to be toppled, which was seeming very inevitable by this point, these works of art were to be defiled and defaced and destroyed. And their mission was to go in and rescue these priceless works of art before they would meet that face. You ever read these stories, kind of like Antiques Roadshow or things like this, where some like grandma will be kind of fishing around in her attic, and she'll come across some like painting that, that she's just kind of had sitting up there collecting dust, and it ends up being like a Picasso or a Rembrandt or something like that? And you ever have these moments going, why does that never happen to me when I have my garage sales? I want you to imagine that you're rooting around in your attic and you actually stumble upon something like this. You actually find it and discover its true worth. And you get excited. You bring it downstairs because you don't want it in some musty old attic. You bring it downstairs. You clean it up. You, you, you put it aside. You got an art broker coming that day. You go out of the house for a while only to come back and find out that your eight-year-old kid pulled out the markers and did the little beard and mustache thing all over it. Or worse, that your 15-year-old who's torqued at you because you took away her iPod kicked a hole through the thing, graffitied the thing, vandalized the thing through and through. It becomes something defiled. It was never meant that way to begin with, but somehow it's become ruined. And this is the paradox that Romans 6 and 7 sets up. This idea that God has made us in his image. He's made us as something good. And even when we've fallen, he's come in and he's redeemed us. And he's purified us and sanctified us to the point that we are now called holy. And yet simultaneously, we are defiled to the core Sinners is the biblical word. That there isn't any aspect of who we are that is left untainted or untouched by this thing called sin, which begins to raise all kinds of practical questions. So what does that mean for how I live? What am I, saint or sinner? 
To which the Bible answers, yes. You are both. And the real trick of this paradox here is not solving how that kind of interplays at some cosmic level. The real trick is understanding what that means when it comes to what side of the paradox we are going to live. Because what it means is that there isn't a single one of us in this room who can say, you know what? I'm just a victim of sin. I'm just a victim of sin and there's nothing I can do about it, so you know, the devil made me do it. It's, it's just the old Adam, right? It's just who I am. Because Romans 6 says, no, you have been set free from sin. You have been declared holy. You are owned by a new master. No one can say they're a slave to sin. And I know what you're thinking, but I've come face to face, and I seem to be beaten by it again and again. Let God be true. Let God be true. Do you believe what God has to say to you? that you are free of sin. Which means that as you approach life in this world, you can expect victory. There is no addiction too great, no weakness too strong, no stronghold too powerful. If you believe that what it says, that God is true, and every man a liar, you are free of sin, leaving us completely without excuse. But it means something else as well. It also means there isn't a single one of us here who can ever think that we are so good, got it so together, that we don't need Christ because this is the other paradox of saint and sin. That despite the fact that we can be called holy and righteous in good, it isn't because of us alone. It's because Christ has come down and made us that way. And without him, there's just one side, sin. Which means we should expect our whole life long to never really be free of it. Do you know what I mean? To never really expect to come to a place where it doesn't haunt our doorstep anymore think we're above the power of temptation, to think that, that somehow we're above the struggle against it, because we've been set free from sin, but sinners we still remain, and somewhere in the middle the two meet. And what the point of Romans 6 and 7 is all about is God leading us to a place to realize who we are and who he has made us to the core, but that we can only find that place through him. I've met so many people who think that religion is about getting good, that religion is about being a better person and somehow getting on a moral improvement plan to get right with God or, or, or get right with myself or, or get God to, to like me or forgive me or, or do something for me again. But I love this line, how Paul ends. He looks at it differently. What a wretched man I am, he says. Who will rescue me from this body of death? 
And there is only one answer to that question. And that's the heart and soul of what God's message is about. It's the heart and soul of what we're doing here. That we come as broken, messed up, sinful people. And God accepts us right where we're at. But he isn't content to leave us there. That somehow when we're united with him, when we come to him and trust in him, as as Paul would even say earlier, when we're baptized or immersed into him, all that is Christ's he counts for us and all that is wrong within us he takes upon himself. And right there is the heart of what it means to be saint and sinner. Once slave, but now free from sin. There is so much speaking to the human nature tucked into Romans 6 and 7. And it goes beyond the ability to dig in deep today. But may this passage that stands at the core of the human experience lead you to Christ and drive you to Christ and give you hope in Christ that there is an answer to this thing called sin. Guys, I want to invite you to rise this morning. Just pray with me. God, we come as sinners and you make us saints. We, call, we come as unholy and you call us holy ones. God, take all of our baggage, all of our filth, all of our brokenness, every ounce and aspect of of who we are that's defiled. And forgive us and redeem us. And may we trust that when you say something, it's true. May we live free from sin as your holy ones, as your saints. Send your spirit upon us, God. Guide us and lead us to give our lives to you. Lord, we pray. Amen.